Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the dazzling Eddie Matthews. Hey, ready, ready, ready to knock your socks off. You better be. That's all we do here at Rationalist. <laughs> yeah. What's going on today? What are we, what are um, we I have a shout about? out for yeah, a, a, new, out. A, a new listener who listened to the online dating episode, Daniel Dominguez. So, Daniel Dominguez, if you're um, listening, you know, good on ya. And uh, right on, mate. <laughs> I don't know why I went Australian. We can just pretend that he's Australian. I don't know who he is, so we, I'm down to pretend. Oh, he's, he's Johnny's friend. The Australian, his Australian friend? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> you got to have internal consistency here at Rational. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, another, another weekend side. So today we're talking about virtual environmentalism, which I had never heard of until Morgan sent me this article that he wrote about it. And um, can you just talk about, is this a term you invented or is this a term kind of in the in the culture that hasn't yet got much momentum? Or? <laughs> well, well, you're about to hear of it in a big way, listeners. <laughs> yeah, um, it's about to explode. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is just, I mean, I'm sure other people have used it, but it's just something we put together. I, I wrote this article, a short article, with um, a colleague of mine, Nicholas Whitstock, um, from my program. And we're trying to... Is he a listener? I don't think so. I think he's got too much sense. <laughs> yeah. But we can send him this one in particular and see what he thinks. Um, okay. Yeah, so we, I had an idea, basically, and he knew a bit more about some of the other things that were going on in this area. Um, and so we kind of... Uh, put some stuff together and it's, it's not quite done yet but I do think it's an interesting idea maybe we can crowdsource from from the you know the hive of rationalist listeners to see if they have anything mm-hmm. to add uh, maybe they can get a shout out of the article but basically the idea is um, looking at climate change and environmentalism and how this kind of intersects the nexus of that and n- modern kind of communications technologies um, and so there's a couple ways to, to look at this, and what has been done or what's being done is mostly about kind of alternatives. It's about how much energy and resources it takes to you know, mobilize the economy to put things into practice using new technologies versus how much it takes to use kind of traditional tangible technologies. Um, and so we are kind of adding to that and saying you're – basically thinking a little too small, um, you should be thinking about the potential of this. Because unlike other areas of the economy, technically the way that things are going with the internet and these virtual spaces, there is actually no upper bound on how much the economy can grow in limitless spaces. So we can back up a little bit, but that's the basic overview of the article. Um, And in... There's some interesting things that have been done that I didn't know about before looking into this about dematerialization and kind of um, the decline in resource use over the last few years. And we're, we're optimistic that these new technologies can kind of help capitalism survive in you know, the modern era where everyone is, is much more rightfully aware of the consequences to the environment. 
So what would be an example of you feel like a physical material resource that might take a lot of, um, um, you know, waste and, and resources to create and produce a lot of pollution that could be produced in a virtual um, way in its stead? So this is the idea of dematerialization. Um, so there's this, uh, I think he's a professor, his name's McAfee, and he wrote a book called More From Less. And talks about how even though we've been hearing, you know, about the consequences of resource use and um, increased consumption, actually since about the 1980s, in Western democracies and Western countries in general, resource use has actually gone down. It hasn't increased at all. It's actually gone down despite increases in population. Um, and this is the case for most countries. And you don't really hear this narrative. It's still at an unsustainable rate. But the fact that populations aren't necessarily decreasing and resource use is going down kind of points to the fact that these new technologies are less resource intensive. So there's two basic ideas. The first one is that the, these technologies are more um, efficient than in terms of resources than the physical counterparts. So think of just the most simple example would be like a filing cabinet. If you put that into okay. a file online, you're taking, you know, it's basically taking up just energy to store the file and keep the file, which is not negligible. It does take up energy. And this stuff is so new that we expect it to become far less resource intensive as time goes on, especially when that's uh, a bigger, a bigger and bigger concern. Things like the Apple, um, not Apple, but uh, Amazon cloud and those sorts of things yeah. actually are incredibly resource intensive. But when you look at the alternative, which would be to store all these documents and you know keep them in paper it's actually you know far more 10, 10 orders of 10 orders of magnitude greater um, and so there's these alternatives but that's not really what we're talking about here we're saying yes this is happening and this is great but we're saying there's actually an opportunity here that's that we're glancing over in that it's not just the idea that you can make tangible transactions intangible it's that you can create intangible actions that could never have been tangible so I think the, the easiest way to think about this is in terms of something like online gaming. So have you ever heard of loot boxes? Uh, not until I read it in this brilliantly written piece. <laughs> so basically, like, people hate them. Anyone who, who games, I'm not a huge gamer, but anyone who plays like online games or online apps really dislikes loot boxes. It's essentially um, the idea that you have to purchase something in a, in a game and with real money and then it you know it'll shoot out one of like 10 things and you're hoping for the best you know gun or clothing item or whatever um potion usually i don't know i don't play a lot of games <laughs> things that yeah, happened yeah, in yeah. mario um but you can get whatever but this is real money you're spending but unlike real life these these things never actually have an applicable purpose in reality so it's not like mm. you're taking something from reality taking an outfit and you know, cutting back on resources. The outfit never actually existed in real life. It's literally just bites. And so yeah. if we can facilitate growth in these online spaces where people are actually investing their capital, the, the kind of underlying uh, um, assumption that people need to consume, that there's this kind of inherent need to consume, if we can channel this into spaces where there's no actual resource use on the other end if you're just consuming in virtual spaces whether that's because more people are joining in these these games or there are actual marketplaces where you can have you know secondary characters uh, second lives those sorts of things then you can actually create limitless 
capitalist consumption without resource use. Yeah, I could see that. But isn't like the type of sectors that can do that vanishingly small in comparison to the, you know, all of the industries that are sending us stuff, material stuff through Amazon? Sure. I mean, at the moment, these this spaces basically don't exist. But if you look at the growth, there's actually been about 25% growth in these industries since 2010, every year, year on year, increasing, which is insane. Um, it's actually just the App Store and online gaming purchases, in-game purchases only, alone, is worth over $200 billion, which is more than double the entire luxury goods are, uh, market in the United States already. And these things have only mm-hmm. been in existence for about 10 years. And so mm-hmm. if you extrapolate out at that current rate, I mean, obviously it'll decrease, there'll be declining returns, possibly, but even if it stayed steady, you know, in 20 years, this could be, it already is a massive market, but this could be in, you know, a gargantuan size space for consumption. Um, and if we start to limit and pare back consumption in other areas, or if just rates continue to decline in terms of actual resource use, this could not be, you know, something that has an infinitesimal effect on the ability of uh, for us to consume and keep capitalism progressing without you know declining in in actual resource consumption and you're right of course you'll never be able to provide tangible assets that are necessary right housing shelter food water all of the important things you need even even things like cars you know transportation communication services that you take with you clothing all that stuff but that is when you actually think about it like pretty you know middling portion of what we actually spend money on if you were to take everything that could possibly be digitalized in the future, that there is some um, world out there where it's not just anything that's not sustenance could be resource negligible, then there's the potential for you know, a decline in resource consumption in that space is you know, near infinite. Yeah. Would we also run the risk of like just um enabling massively more consumption by making it so much easier to consume so the idea i i mean i guess like the like the wally idea right where it's like everything is so efficient and so easy that we're all like 350 pounds just kind of zooming around like watching tv all day and playing like virtual golf with one hand. Sure. I mean, you could come up with dystopias or utopias. No, no, no. I don't. I just mean, and that's obviously like a, like a really hyper exaggerated example, but I just mean like the, how, I guess, how do you, how would you think about combating that temptation with like a fully functional, you know, life that includes, exercising but maybe not exercising in the way that also just contributes to driving to the gym you know using all the resources and compounding the problem that you were originally trying to solve like how do you think you would negotiate that what in this case is the original problem we're trying to solve because i think these are separate issues really okay so let's talk about like golf for example let's say a golf course which uses a huge amount of water right? And in California, that's a precious, it's getting to be more of a precious commodity. Um, and 
maybe you know the golf course deciding to try to put that experience to some degree in a virtual capacity either through vr or through some sort of kind of like projector system kind of like like a better Wii golf you know like let's say they did that and that would cut down a lot of the resources of water right and it would cut down a lot of resources of like driving to the golf course and you know um just consuming all the products there etc and you kind of you know keep in your little unit and so that I think would be in line with what you're saying about virtual environmentalism, but also how do you get that person who would also be kind of like socializing and meeting up with friends and doing that in a, on a golf course, you know, how, how do you combat like the isolate isolation that it seems like a lot of these virtual spaces or like sitting and playing video games, right. And you know, you're consuming that way and helping fight environmentalism by just kind of like staying home and meeting their friends online in a video game capacity, but you're also missing the just like tangible kind of like sensory human interaction, right? Sure. I mean, I think that that's a problem, not just with this, but that's a problem with all resource consumption in general, right? If you have to cut back on your ability to go see your friends in a car because, you know, there's too much pollution in the air, then you're going to have to find some sort of alternative. I think with the ongoing COVID thing, we've seen a lot of negatives, but we've also seen how easy it is for people to stay in touch in the, in the modern era. I wouldn't be able to see you right now talking to you and recording this, um, like through this virtual space, even 10, 15 years ago. And so these things are moving at such a pace. I think it's to say that we won't get to a point where there is negligible difference in terms of at least communicability online I have more faith in the ability of technology to expand beyond that. Um, so I guess it depends on, on what you think you need. If it's just about you know physical exercise, then I, I think there'll be things to do. I'm not sure. I mean, if there were games that you could log into and it feels like reality, I think we would have a lot of social and political problems that go far beyond you know, your ability to stay in shape. And I think we're already heading that direction, right? I think we've seen a lot of economic growth as a result of the expansion of the internet and those sorts of things. And we've seen a lot of increased connection and you know, important developments in terms of global communication, but we've also seen the downsides that have been talked about, especially in the last five, six years with Facebook, um, especially, and a lot of these other companies that possibly hurting democracy, possibly hurting, you know, increased communication between people. Um, and I think that's something we have to deal with regardless. So even if even if there was no resource potential for these things and the reduction and improvement of these green spaces, I think this would be something we're dealing with. Um, and I don't think necessarily, you know, halting them because we don't really know how we'll handle it is, is a good reason to necessarily be less optimistic about the potentially, you know, climate changing, climate inducing uh, effects of these types of systems. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting problem because we're not going to stave off the kind of conflation between the digital space and the physical space. Like that just will come with time. Um, but negotiating the problems that the, that that entails is going to take <laughs> a lot of work from like how you parent in a, in a place where like augmented reality is the most kind of basic way that you interact with the world 
um, versus like how you teach, you know, students in that way versus how you date somebody in that way. Like it's just going to be, um, a huge kind of shift, I think. And, and I don't know, maybe this virus is kind of preparing us in some small way for that. Well, I mean, ideally, if you were able to cut back enough on traditional consumption, then it wouldn't be an issue going and actually connecting to people in real time because you wouldn't have to worry as much about gas and, you know, the actual day-to-day consumption that you have because you would have reduced, you know, luxury consumption and that sort of thing by engaging in online spaces in your free time otherwise. Um, but, you know, this is such projection to a future that who knows if it even come about. Um, but I think looking at it, at, looking at the positives and the negatives, you can see how being able to continue to consume while people do criticize, you know, capitalism in many rightful ways, the ability to consume more things and have the opportunity to engage in a greater number of activities is usually a good thing for many people, particularly if you look at parts yeah. of the world where consumption rates are still very low. Um, and I think we, we're facing problems that, I mean, I think a lot of people would be extremely grateful to have the opportunity to pick between a few virtual realities to, to engage in. And it doesn't have to be virtual realities. It can be a number of different things, but the ability to consume without necessarily having to be central in a central position in the global market is something that we kind of take for granted here in the West as well. Yeah. And the fact that like Netflix is now thinking about their, you know, market in Asia at the same time that they're thinking about their market in America rather than like, you know, traditionally production companies scheduling kind of like different, you know, release dates and stuff is, I think kind of goes with what you're saying about um, people getting all the same products simultaneously now and not having to kind of, I don't know, live in more of like a multi-tiered consumer space, I guess. So I've got a question for you. Do you think, because I think a lot of the pushback on this type of idea is not necessarily against the movement of consumption from physical consumption to intangible consumption. Though there, there is some stuff there about whether you can actually... It, you get the same gratification out of virtual consumption versus physical consumption, tangible consumption. But I think a lot of it and kind of what you're getting at here is more just kind of an objection to the idea that we need greater consumption to begin with, at least in you know the U.S. and a lot of Western countries. Like We, we have everything we need at this point. We don't necessarily need more. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that argument's in an American context is even that viable to have the argument of like, let's consume less because I mean, maybe if maybe you can get away with making that argument, if you're like a spiritual person who runs retreats for a living and can kind of like (laughs) approach it from that angle. But if you're just kind of like your average American and you're trying to, I don't think it's a viable argument to make because I don't think that you're going to get any traction in a real, any real traction in mainstream culture with that message um, because of just how markets work. And so I think that you kind of have to engage with the American consumption to some degree uh, rather than just saying curb it 
Um, or you could go the Marie Kondo kind of like route of being like, let's not be hoarders. And I think that can gain some traction. But I, I think I'm talking about more like you have to incentivize the right type of consumption. And I think that that has to maybe come from the top down and from the bottom up, but mostly from the top down, I think, in America, because we don't really have like a great tradition of bottom up, you know, thinking. And so I think what that would look like is kind of having really, really kind of harsh, um, you know, tax uh, codes for oil companies and trying to disincentivize that type of consumption and then having really kind of like lax or like supportive um, tax codes for, you know, your more kind of um, green based, you know, environmental neutral type companies in whatever sector and whatever industry, you know. Um, And I think that that's kind of the only way that that you can really um, simultaneously like I guess feed the the need to consume that we have in this country, but also try to create new industries and new sectors with that. So that like you're saying in the article, you're not necessarily trying to make a binary out of um, um, environmental kind of progress in capitalism. Um, And so I think that would maybe um, need to happen, but those who have an interest in curbing technological innovation and actually like hamstringing capitalism to just prolong a golden era of an industry. I mean, we've seen that throughout the entire 20th century and like 20 years of the 21st century with the oil companies and like gas powered cars, you know, I believe Henry Ford had a prototype for an electric car, like in the 1910s, you know? So it's like, they, it took us a hundred years to even get like a viable electric car on the market when that was just due to like corruption and lobbying and, you know, trying to curb actual capital interests, capitalistic interests. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, you bring up a couple of good points. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the oil industry and a lot of these resource intensive industries is, is like you say, I mean, being able to lobby is an essential part of, of kind of the American constitution. If we look back at Federalist Paper 10 and the, the ability of different interests to kind of engage with, with Congress, usually what happens is, you know, at a certain point in time, a new technology, a disruptive technology comes in and is just more effective, more efficient, or financially. Yeah. So it's just financially better. The interesting thing about oil and, and um, kind of renewable resources is that they, the oil industry is, is fighting back like most industries would. They have a lot more clout than a lot of industries because of the centrality of, of that form of energy consumption, and particularly in states that are you know, important for electoral politics. But also the fact that this is kind of – if it wasn't for the fears of climate change and resource consumption, I think we would look at the oil industry's efforts more like the efforts of – the farming industry where they get subsidies, you know, they've gotten subsidies for years based on their importance to the electoral vote, but it doesn't necessarily have the same effect on the globe or, you know, pollution in certain cities and the environment. So it's very unique because of the scope, because of the way, how global the economy is today. The oil industry's decline was kind of precipitated not only by financial insolvency, but also by 
kind of a cooperative necessity uh, for reduced consumption of these types of resources. So it, it's very unique, and I, I think that's correct because you know climate change is the things that are happening are are not um, something you can kind of just laugh off and say let's mark let the market take care of it all by itself. Um, that's why we've seen people subsidize certain green technologies so that they can become more financially viable in a shorter period of time. And, you know, we'll see if, if that was um, enough to get it there quicker. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting case. I just want to point out a couple of things. So when you talk about the need for kind of top-down behavioral change, I can think of, you know, instances where this has gone well, essentially like raising taxes on cigarettes, those sorts of things. But I think that we could have an interesting ethical discussion about where to draw the line, right? So you see people try to pass, I think some cities have soda taxes, you know, candy taxes, sugar taxes, and a lot of other cities have shot down these types of things and basically saying you should have the ability to consume even if it's unhealthy for you because it's you know, your, your right to do so. Um, and I think yeah. this is an interesting ethical debate that I haven't heard discussed about in the technological realm. I think there's definitely, you could bring in some things from Wally and other forms of of kind of futuristic dystopias that see on the, the shift to online being a form of unhealthy consumption. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily, if the online space is necessarily more morally corrupting than, than traditional spaces, um, but there's an interesting argument to be made. I think things like internet anonymity that allows people to kind of hide behind, you know, other reputations and promote, you know, terrible things without consequences is something that people don't talk about enough. And I think it makes those spaces inherently different than traditional face-to-face -face encounters. Um, and so I think these types of things are what, when we, if we are going to see these spaces as a potential path forward for the environmental movement and for um, kind of a reduction in intensive resource use, we need to be talking about the incentives that we put in place or the institutions that we put in place that can conceive of a world that's you know sim either similar to what we have in day-to-day -day encounters or one that at least improves upon it in some way and not one that allows the anonymity of the internet or these spaces to take over and lead to you know a, a genuine dystopia yeah it's a super interesting Super complex, like climate change is the most complex problem I think that our generation will ever face. Do I need to and go grab a snowball so... from outside? And like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in in east of LA right now, it's snowing outside, so I don't see the problem. No, um, so I think we have to approach it truly as an ontological problem, like the state of our being. You know, and I think that I, th I mean that both in like a super kind of like alarming sense, but also in like a potentially optimistic sense, like it's climate change is an ontological problem in the way that we're talking about it, because we're, we're talking about potentially irreversible damage that is going to like destroy our planet for good. Right. And that becomes, you know, like an ontological philosophical discussion at that point when it's like literally annihilation um and so when we get into that territory um then maybe that does mean risking uh, all of the kind of 
potential problems that come with a much more like um, low low waste but high internet involved um, society. But that also kind of brings into problems of, you know, in face-to-face interactions and worlds, like we all have different personas. So that's, so your online persona and your, and your, who you are in person are different personas. Like that's not a new problem because Morgan, when you go to an academic conference and you give a lecture there and you're commiserating with your colleagues afterward is a super different Morgan than like me and you watching a movie and eating a pizza. Because I'm even because <laughs> I'm even more refined, and I put my tweed exactly. jacket on when we watch the movie. You're way more articulate with the pizza <laughs> I, I and say, three beers. I just in. say indubitably all over, over and over again. <laughs> yeah, and so like we already negotiate so many different personas, whether you're a parent or whether you're a student or a customer service person or whatever. And so it's like we're all kind of like juggling that simultaneously. But I think when you kind of compound the anonymity of an online persona or the fact that it's really hard to clarify yourself in an online capacity, you know? So it's like self-expression becomes almost like way more um, just like calcified and permanent in an online space so that you have people's entire reputations being dismantled by like one thing they said online at one point that isn't the sum total of who they are as a person. Um, we whereas, get it, like, dude. if you're at dinner, yeah. <laughs> Me Girls isn't your favorite movie, okay? We, we know it was a joke, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, I think we have to, I think that's why uh, we were talking about, I think, before we turned uh, on, the, on the pod, um, this Times Higher Education article that I read about how Germany is kind of soliciting the help of this panel of anthropologists and philosophers and ethicists about how to, like, reopen German society um, amidst, you know, the kind of the potential cost of coronavirus and everything um, in terms of like human lives. And um, so I think we really need to engage the humanities in this conversation too, not as like a, oh, shucks, we forgot about the humanities. Let's get them because we're nice people. But like, no, like philosophers and, and people that think deeply about the self and how like the, the, the self interacts in society and like these kind of really I don't know theoretical discussions I think are taking on a new dimension when we're treating a problem that is so that you know is potentially annihilating for future generations so I think we have to make it like a more inclusive argument than just throwing the capitalists and the scientists in a room together to try to figure it out you know yeah absolutely no I think this is this is not where I expected this conversation to go but I think this is this is good in that I think any potential that you know virtual environmentalism or whatever you want to call it has at contributing to you know the problem, contributing to be the solution, is going to have to grapple with the same things we've been you know trying to figure out as a society over the last fifteen years since the internet has really taken over, um, and we haven't got any closer to solving them. It doesn't seem. Um, yeah, I think it's just another. Another area where we have yet to really figure out how to utilize the benefits of this interconnectivity without, you know, leaving ourselves open to destruction we never knew possible in terms of, you know, mental health, 
social disconnection, polarization, yeah. and all these things. Yeah. It it would do us well to eat a big slice of humble pie before approaching problems like this. As long too. as it doesn't have a certain amount of sugar, or else I'm going to call the authorities. I know. Well, yeah. You probably <laughs> won't even be able to get certain types of humble pie in different counties. Dude, I can depending get you on a mad they've... virtual humble pie, though. Don't even worry. Yeah. <laughs> if they've banned, like, a, what is it? Um, like certain type of carbs. <laughs> it was like trendy to band for a while. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, did we solve it? Go. Yeah, I think we solved okay, it. Good. Thanks, guys. I won't even put the article out now, so we were good. Yeah, you don't need to. <laughs> well, if it does end up getting published, we'll we'll put it. Uh, we'll attach it to the show notes at some point. So. Yeah, that'll be fun. Anyway, until next time, rational listeners. Peace. Peace.